There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine. Episode 12 of the Shine On podcast, I'm Evan Shine. As always, producer David Diaz is with us on the other side of the mic. And David, we have a really great show today. Mm. I am joined by leading sports law and business attorney, Darren Heitner of Heitner Legal. Darren is an attorney, author, and professor. No one has their pulse on the business and legal side of the sports world like Darren. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the interplay between family law and sports, what family law attorneys need to know when working with professional athletes, and with the NFL draft behind us, what an absolutely perfect time to talk to Darren about the draft how to protect an athlete's brand, the changing landscape in the world of college athletics, and the impact these changes at the NCAA level will have not only on professional sports, but in athletes' personal wealth and family. And speaking of the NFL draft, what a great job the NFL does each and every year, capturing the moments, the draft picks, the stories. And what fascinates me as a family law attorney, it's the background the family dynamics and the backstory, as I've seen in my work as a family law attorney firsthand, just how the impact of family often guides the life choices athletes may make, both the positive ones and the not so positive ones that you unfortunately read about in newspapers when it comes to how athletes invest their money, the management of their money, and how they live their lives financially. And it's often said that the NFL draft is the day and moment where an athlete's life changes forever, the fame, the fortune, the football field that an athlete dreams of stepping on. Going back to the days in Pop Warner, to high school football, playing on Friday nights. Now hearing your name called by the commissioner, Roger Goodell on draft day, there's not much better than that. But there's also an often overlooked peace and dark side of the sports and family life that doesn't get discussed all that often without the right trusted team in place, the attorney, financial advisor, agent, business manager, athletes can become targets and taken advantage of. We're going to talk to Darren about the business side of sports, the sports agency business, athlete representation, and unfortunately, how is it that athletes can sign multi-million dollar deals and end up broke? Coming up on the other side of the docket is my interview with our featured guest this week on episode 12 of the Shine Up podcast, Darren Heitner. This is an interview that you will not want to miss. All right, counselor, as usual, the docket is locked and loaded. Are you ready, my friend? Let's do it, Dave. All right. And now let's see what's on the docket. First on the docket, from everyone's favorite tabloid, the New York Daily News. New York Daily News is a tabloid. I think it read, is. Yeah, you read, I, I don't want to confuse it with the Post. Uh, this is news about former Yankee shortstop D.D. Gregorius, who is paying uh, 
$15,000 per month in child support to the Florida mom who sued him. Let's hear the story here. Took a paternity suit, writes the New York Daily News, for former Yankee shortstop Didi Gregorius to step up to the plate as a dad. Gregorius, 31, was sued in November of 2019 by a Florida woman who said she was the mother of his child. The woman, named Nicole Regan, demanded sole custody and child support from the millionaire athlete. The Daily News has learned daughter was five months old at the time. And uh, there you go. Suit filed in the great state of Florida. Your thoughts on this? Dave, my first thought is, look, after a few weeks in the Major League Baseball season, I, I wish Didi was still playing for the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was. I, I'm not sure why they let him go. He was a great player, right? Great player. Yeah. Philadelphia was going to pay him more money. Yeah, I get it. But look, this article brings up, there's a few really important legal issues that I want to spend a few minutes talking about. The first is the private out-of-court paternity test that the article mentions. When you're dealing with and working with a celebrity, a professional athlete, an entertainer, agreeing to a paternity test in advance of any court proceeding out of the public eye and spotlight, it's important and it's often an absolute must. And this is exactly what happened here as Gregorius agreed to a paternity test privately. And I would also add a confidentiality agreement, which the article doesn't mention. That doesn't mean there's not one in place. But I can't stress enough how important confidentiality agreements are in the family law context, as well as non-disclosure agreements, which look to protect the playing contract between the player and the team, as well as other endorsement contracts and marketing contracts as well. The second important legal issue is custody and time-sharing schedules for athletes. Look, there's challenges and nuances that exist when you're negotiating parenting time and custody for professional athletes and other professionals who travel extensively for work. I see this in my practice all the time. It's the balancing of competing interests of stability and consistency for the child pitted up against the importance of a child having two very involved parents, even one who has a quite demanding travel and playing schedule. Now, the article makes reference to a baseball spring training timesharing agreement, which is common. And there may be, and there likely is, a totally different timesharing custody schedule for during the season and when Gregorius is in town versus when he's out of town and also during the offseason, depending on where he calls home. Now, the former New York Yankee now plays for Philadelphia. Spring training, as the article mentions, for the Phillies takes place in Florida, which is where his daughter and the mother reside. Now, Philadelphia to Florida, look, it's a quick flight. So geography here is not that important. But Gregarious has signed a two-year deal with the Phillies, and who knows if he's going to re-sign with them when his contract's up or another team in a different city, East Coast, West Coast, or somewhere in between, and where the team he plays for will have spring training. Look, spring training takes place in Florida. It takes place in Arizona. This is why having a custody agreement for an athlete that accounts for these specific scenarios and not only a detailed understanding of family law issues, but also the sports industry is really important. But I also want to talk about behind the scenes here because the other thing I think is worth mentioning, look, as fans of players and teams, we often question, how is it that some one could have signed 
with another team or want to live in a particular city? Or why are they seeking a deal that's going to pay them more? Or maybe they're looking to stay where they've been and take what's called the hometown discount. I raise these points because there may be something going on behind the scenes in an athlete's life or family that the public may not know, but is often a guiding factor in decision when it comes time for an athlete to decide where he or she is going to play. But I also want to talk about child support. Dave, you mentioned $15,000 per month. Since this article came out, I've been asked by a lot of people, is that a fair amount or not? Mm. Look, I can't weigh in on whether 15K is enough. It's the Florida case. I practice in New York. But look, Rogarius earned $24 million guaranteed just from his playing contract. This doesn't even scratch the surface into any money he earns off the baseball field. The fact that child support was agreed to, or it appears it was agreed to outside of court, that's a good thing. As the article mentions, the child was a few months old when the amount was agreed to. And from a legal standpoint, I wonder how was this determined to be the amount? Was it a number that both parties were just comfortable enough to settle on? Now, legally in New York, considerations that I encounter when I'm representing a professional athlete and things to think about are, what's the analysis? Is it an income analysis? Is it a needs analysis? Is it a lifestyle analysis? And you also factor in other considerations, travel arrangements, medical, school, housing expenses to allow the other parent to travel to road games and on road trips. There's a lot of considerations that take place. And as a family law attorney, understanding the sport that the athlete plays in is important because baseball is very different than other sports. You have a 162-game schedule. The road trips take up several months of the year, and the players are on the road a lot of the time. Mm. Now, reports are that Gregorius has two years and $24 million left on his deal. And I'll say this, look, as he gets close to the end of this contract, my practical tip is, look, everyone knows when the contract is going to expire. And if you're part of Gregorius's team, and as you get close to the expiration, for him and what he's going through off the field, it's important to consider what team he's going to play for, what city he's going to live in. And this gets back to having a team of people around the athlete, the attorney, the advisor, the manager, and the agent. So these conversations happen not once the contract is up, but in advance of that. It is interesting because, first of all, let me actually let me ask you a question, Evan, because he has almost unlimited funds when it comes to paying something like child support. But is the fact that he is a multimillionaire a factor? In other words, fifteen thousand a month to the average person sounds more than generous. That's probably enough for her and her daughter to live on, but it's not much to Gregorius. So it's not akin to alimony or division of marital assets in that you get half of what they get. Ideally, you're supposed to get what the child needs. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great question. And it's, it, it, this is the exact analysis that as an attorney, you think about and you present your argument to the other side or to the court. Is it, look, the, the parties, they, they weren't married. So you don't have the division of assets here that you would have if they were. So when you figure out child support, these are the discussions. What do you base it on? Just because someone earns 5 million, 20 million, 50 million, 
you don't necessarily base child support on that full amount of the income. You're going to figure out what's an appropriate cap for child support purposes when you start determining child support, how much per month. So it's not the full income. It's an amount of income that's capped by which child support is going to be set. But there's other considerations. What are the child's needs? What are the child's lifestyle? Where are the parents going to live? And I mentioned the travel arrangements Mm -hmm. and the unique circumstance for Gregorius. And all these things become part of the legal discussion and conversation. And look, Dave, one of the benefits coming to an agreement outside of court, you can reach a deal on whatever you want, whatever makes sense based on support, based on lifestyle, based on education. These are the discussions that take place outside of court and everybody can incorporate those agreements and terms into the deal. My final question, counselor, is could Gregorius's lawyer have tried to have this case sealed so it wouldn't have gone public? He's a, he's a public figure. He seems to be at least participating in this process, but he probably would have chosen for this to not be in the news. And it, it appears as though a New York Daily News reporter just got the court documents, which were public. It's a, another great question. And I can't speak to Florida and what the specific requirements are to either have an anonymous caption. There's certain requirements when you file a caption or file a divorce action to have the documents, you know, or, or, or the, the caption listed as anonymous versus anonymous mm-hmm. or to have the court file sealed. So I can't speak to that. But look, anytime you can resolve something with as little media scrutiny as possible, it's obviously better. There appears that there were parts of this that were resolved outside of court. The private paternity test is a good thing, as I mentioned. So it does appear that there were things that both sides, for obvious reasons, tried to resolve without the public spotlight and without going through the court process. But sometimes with the media and all that comes with it, it's hard to escape it. You can't stop the New York Daily News. You can only hope to contain it, and uh, he couldn't in this place. <laughs> so uh, next, next on the docket, uh, we stay in the world of sports. The dark side of golfer Lee Westwood's $65 million divorce is a story coming from sportscasting.com. It reports when pro athletes divorce, a lot of money is up for grabs. Golfer Lee Westwood learned this the hard way after he divorced his wife of 16 years. While his $65 million split involved a large sum of money, it wasn't nearly as expensive as that of Tiger Woods or Greg Norman. With his marriage over, Westwood moved back to England in the hopes of recharging his slumping golf career. And the article goes on to detail how the pressure of this divorce, the distraction of this divorce, caused the golfer's golf game to deteriorate and hence he finds himself where he is your thoughts on this one Evan? dave my thoughts are look the first line of the article when pro athletes divorce a lot of money's up for grabs i read that headline the first line about five times because the article references a 65 million dollar split and yeah this is a lot of money that is up for grabs that could have and should have been protected so when i'm reading this article i'm thinking to myself Did he have a prenup? Mm. Did he have a prenuptial agreement? Because this is exactly where it comes into play and why I have been saying, if you're an athlete, having a prenuptial agreement before you get married, it's an absolute must. Now, in a prenuptial agreement, you can protect your income and assets, and you can agree on the terms of a divorce in the event things don't work out. You can come to your own deal. 
one that works when people are amicable and in love, about to get married, as opposed to wanting to tear the other one apart and fight. Now, where do you think it's easier to negotiate a settlement and the terms when you're in love or when things have broken down? But Dave, as you mentioned, the other point in this article is the effect of divorce on Westwood's golf game and his career. And we've talked about before on the podcast about the impact of an amicable split and the impact on celebrities' careers. We've mentioned Ben Affleck. We've mentioned other celebrities and, and, and years after separation or divorce, how they have now been able to focus and rejuvenate themselves and really do excellent and amazing things with their career. But look, Westwood's game took a dive. And that's not a surprise. Divorce can be overwhelming. It's a full-time job. It takes up energy, time, focus, and money. But look, the story has a happy ending. It's not all that bad for Westwood, as apparently he's now engaged to his caddy, which is not only a good thing for him, it's a good thing for his golf game. As according to the article, his golf game is much improved, as in 2018, he ranked number 125, and in 2020, He's up to number 19. So there's a happy ending after all. And old-fashioned folks like me, I confess, raise the question in my head, is his caddy male or female? Happens to be female. Her name is Helen Story. And uh, she is credited with helping revitalize his career. By the way, your point about the prenup is spot on simply because there was opportunity to do so. They've been married since 1999. So you would think maybe maybe they got married before he hit the big time, but not so. He had already won his first major in 96. So it was there. That's a great point. And yeah. these are all part of the considerations and things to think about when you represent an athlete, when you represent anyone and there's something to protect. And it's a conversation that absolutely needs to take place and should take place before marriage. Our featured guest this week on the Shine Up podcast is Darren Heitner. Darren is a leading sports law, intellectual property, and business attorney, and the founder of Heitner Legal. Darren has represented numerous athletes and sports agents on business, intellectual property, and contract-related matters. He is an adjunct law professor at the University of Florida. Darren has appeared on ESPN, CNBC, CBS News, and several other media outlets. He's the founder of the Sports Agent blog, the one and only go-to resource and publication for sports agency news, interviews, and information. Darren is a former contributor for Forbes and currently writes for Above the Law. He's the author of the absolutely must-read book, How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know. Darren, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. How are you? First of all, thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Darren, we're going to get into a lot of great stuff, and there's a lot I want to talk about. And I want to start by asking you about the NFL draft. Now, the NFL draft for so many athletes, it's something they dream of at an early age, hearing their name called on draft day and playing in National Football League. But with that fame and fortune, there's a lot that comes with it, more money than an athlete has ever seen before. Now, I know that you work with athletes in all areas, specifically on business protection, trademarks, intellectual property. And I want to ask you, what does a rookie in the National Football League need to know and be aware of after draft day when it comes to money, the creation of a brand and the opportunities to earn money off the field and also protecting it? 
First of all, I think any rookie would be wise to have an appreciation as to what he is entitled to make on the field. What's unique about the NFL, as opposed to the NBA, Major League Baseball, the NHL, is that a large amount of the money that we see with regard to the players' contracts with teams is non-guaranteed in nature. And that's true for the rookie contract. It's also true for second, third, fourth contracts if players are fortunate enough to get there. So I think the most important thing for these rookies to understand is that being drafted high or drafted at all is an amazing experience. They're absolutely fortunate, but they should be cognizant that this is just the start and they still have a lot to prove in order to receive the full amounts on their contracts and ever make it to a second and third contract. But as you mentioned, there are opportunities for players off the field. And I think a lot of players believe that no matter what position they play, no matter what market they may play in, uh, no matter how good or bad they may be, that these opportunities will exist. To an extent, that's true. If a player wants to do the local car dealership type of deal, he may be able to find it. It may not actually be for compensation. It may be for some sort of other trade in kind. But by and large, only the very best players, the most prominent players, those with the best personalities, looks, so on and so forth, and primarily those at the sexy offensive positions like quarterback and wide receiver, perhaps even running back, are fortunate enough to receive the types of endorsements that we typically read about the six, seven figure type deals by and large, again, that's relegated for those very few in the NFL. And I'd say less so even than in the NBA, because if you think about it, the athletes in the NFL are largely playing padded up and with helmets on. So we don't really get to see their faces for the most part. Whereas in the NBA, that's not true. You can see the arms of the players. You can see the legs, you can see the face. Sure. Um, and, and Darren, and that, so they become more marketable because of that. And Darren, that, that, that's a great point. You bring up a lot of things that I want to talk about. You mentioned the guaranteed contracts in, in other sports and non-guaranteed deals in the NFL. As an attorney who's worked with athletes and players, in your experience, when is the best time to have those conversations with the athletes, with the agents? Is it even before draft day? Is it after draft day, and obviously you mentioned, look, it depends when you're drafted and what a career looks like, but in your experience, when do those conversations take place or should they take place about the opportunities off the field as well as investing and endorsements and things like that? The conversation should occur as quickly and as soon as possible, and I think that's even more so in the very near future as college athletes and athletes at an earlier age are about to be able to begin to exploit their names, images, and likenesses, which they cannot currently do. So these individuals really should be considering best practices for building and protecting their brands at an even earlier age and having those important conversations with their agents and or their lawyers to determine what their strategy will be to ensure that they are associating themselves with best in class, the types of brands that they actually like to use and feel comfortable to endorse, and also to ensure that they're not oversaturating themselves. I think a really good 
case in study would be someone like Patrick Mahomes. I remember during the first year of his NFL career, everyone was starting to talk about him and how amazing he was excelling on the field. And he made it a point that he was not going to enter into any endorsement deals during that first year. In essence, he bet on himself and he said, I want to focus on what I'm doing on the field and that the opportunities will still be there year two, year three, and so on. And in fact, he believed that he would be more marketable. So he wouldn't have to attach himself early on and basically sell himself short. Hindsight being 2020, it was an excellent decision. If he would have suffered a catastrophic injury during that year, we may be saying otherwise. But I think having that kind of conversation, doing the diligence and coming up with a game plan as early as possible is a very smart idea for every player. And Darren, that you bring up Patrick Mahomes, that obviously worked out for him. He signed a record-breaking deal in the offseason. I want to talk about the modern-day athlete, and specifically NFL star wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins. He made headlines when he signed a five-year, $94 million deal, but it wasn't necessarily the money that gathered all the attention. It was the fact that he represented himself in this deal and this negotiation. And there's been a few athletes over the years who have chosen to represent themselves, Hopkins being one of the latest ones. And shortly after he signed his deal, he posted a picture of himself on Twitter signing the deal. And the caption was Agent Hop. And he's quoted as saying, I think also just showing other players, you can get things done yourself if you believe in yourself and have the right team around you. So I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on this? And do you see this becoming a trend where more athletes begin to represent themselves going forward? I'm not certain that I see it becoming a trend. I think there's a select few number of athletes who are willing to put in the research, conduct the diligence, and feel comfortable negotiating their own contracts. Understand Agents go through a lot of experience. They have the relationships. They understand how to properly value the players and negotiate these deals. To the extent that lawyers are involved, the same thing. There's an old adage that says, he who represents himself has a fool for a client. And so, for instance, I wouldn't represent myself as a lawyer if I had a claim. In fact, I was considering bringing a claim recently against a a service contract provider here in in the state of Florida, and I didn't even consider representing myself. I think it's always good to have somebody who's unbiased and doesn't have emotional attachment to the situation. But then again, we have seen a few players. You mentioned Hopkins. Richard Sherman is another example. Russell Okung. So there's a few examples of people who have done it. I think, again, you'd have to look at whether or not it was a successful negotiation later on in the individual's career or in retirement. But by and large, I don't think that it will be a good fit for players to do that. Perhaps on a rookie deal where the compensation is slotted, so there's very little in the realm of negotiation once a player is drafted, although agents would argue that they are very helpful with regard to where the player gets drafted. So that's a consideration. But I think on those second, third, and fourth contracts, agents really do provide a lot of value. And honestly, for a very low, small sum of money, they're capped at at taking 3% on the contract. 
and oftentimes take less than 3% to remain competitive. And Darren, look, you bring up the fact, whether as an attorney, you wouldn't represent yourself. I get asked all the time as a family law attorney, divorce attorney, should I represent myself or not? My answer is generally always no. And I think you bring up some of the reasons why athletes might, but also the reasons that athletes work with agents. And I want to ask you about Hopkins quote that I just read, because he talks about having the right team and people around him. And I want to ask you about the importance of an athlete having the right team of professionals, whether it's the agent, the business manager, lawyer, the financial advisor, what is the importance of having a team around an athlete at an early stage in the athlete's career? I'm a big proponent with regard to an athlete creating a business team. As you mentioned, service providers include the agent, sometimes a separate manager, a financial planner, an accountant, a lawyer, so on and so forth. I love nothing more than having those types of checks and balances in place for the athlete. I find a lot of athletes find themselves in bad positions when they have one individual handling everything on their behalf. There's no way to, to check that, that individual to ensure that he or she is really representing the best interests of the player and carrying out his or her fiduciary duties. And, I, and also, for instance, oftentimes I'll have an athlete who I provide legal services to ask me a tax-related question. I like to stay in my lane. I don't want to have to feel pressured to answer that in any way. And if the athlete has a strong accountant on his team, then I can simply bring in the accountant in, in answering the particular question. And so often, a legal question bleeds into other areas. So it's important to have those people lined up. And if one person's not providing the services that the athlete envisions, make a change. There's no issue with that. But I think it is wise for athletes to consider creating that business team early in their careers. And Darren, you mentioned all the great reasons that an athlete should have that business team. And you also mentioned the bad position an athlete might find himself or herself in if it is just one person. And so I want to ask you, because too often you hear about the athletes who lost millions of dollars, the star athlete who earned hundreds of million dollars during his or her career and is somehow bankrupt whether he was taken advantage of by a financial advisor or made bad business or financial decisions or the athlete who just couldn't say no to friends and family. And so I want to ask you as someone who's worked with a lot of athletes and a lot of different sports agents, give us an inside look into the life in the background of a professional athlete, the upbringing, the story, and which may help explain why sometimes it is hard for a professional athlete to say no, which also ties into what you mentioned, the benefits of having a business team around the athlete at an early stage. Yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate when blanket statements are made about players and their upbringing and where they come from. I think it is fair to generalize and say that many players come from poor socioeconomic backgrounds and oftentimes that plays into their thinking. But that's not true for every athlete. So I would caution people into coming to those types of conclusions. There are many athletes who come from backgrounds where their parents went to college, they're entrepreneurs, they have a lot of success, they never had a need for money. And then there are certainly those athletes who 
were part of ma- large families where their mom, maybe there wasn't a father figure and the mom had to work many jobs and so on and so forth. Sometimes that type of upbringing actually works to the player's advantage because the player realizes that they, he or she is fortunate, understands the sacrifices that the mother or father made and is not willing to put himself in a position like that. And is I love reading the stories about the players. I think it was Alvin Kamara recently who said, I haven't even touched the money from my team contracts. I've been living off of my marketing income alone. Those stories are fantastic. I'd love athletes to read that and learn from it. I know Rob Gronkowski is another example of just that. So we do see a lot of sad stories, as you've mentioned. Unfortunately, the media loves to highlight those stories as opposed to the the vast majority of success stories. But they are important learning lessons as well. And oftentimes the players aren't even at fault. Oftentimes the players provide powers of attorney to financial planners who are unscrupulous and just blow all the athletes' money. There are many examples of that. So sometimes it's the service providers that are to blame. But ultimately, I think they have to take responsibility for at least giving those service providers so much power over their lives and their finances, which ends up in in the really sad stories that we sometimes read. And Darren, you mentioned the positive story that you read about Alvin Kamara. I read the same article. And when you hear something like that and read about it, it's fantastic because that also is a lesson, as you mentioned, for so many athletes when things go. So that's a great story to hear. Darren, I want to shift gears and talk about the sports agent business and the sports representation world. It's a very competitive, hard business to not only break into, but to stay in, be successful at it and earn money. And you've written extensively about and give this great breakdown after the NFL draft about the number of agents and agencies that actually represent players round by round, who they are. And so I want to ask you, where do you see the sports agency business headed? And is it a good thing or not that so few agents and agencies represent so many players? Well, Touching on the latter question first, I suppose that depends on who you ask. And from my position as a lawyer and not as an agent, although I'm a former agent, I practiced many years ago in that capacity, I, I don't think that it's a bad thing necessarily that there is this accumulation of power within a select few, as long as the services that are being provided are top quality. You look at the top agents in the NFL, like Drew Rosenhaus, Joel Siegel, Tom Condon, Jimmy Sexton, Tori Dandy, David Mulligetta, and I can go on. There's a reason why they have so many clients. One, they're excellent marketers. They work tirelessly and they, they're past their results prove just how good they are. So it's not necessarily a bad thing unless, of course, the agents overextend themselves and don't have enough time to cater to each individual client. But we haven't really seen stories like that. Where do I see the agency world going? I think more consolidation and probably more strategic alliances between traditional talent entertainment 
companies and agencies in the sports world. I think a lot of those types of talent and entertainment agencies realized that they had all of their eggs in one basket. And with the pandemic, it was interesting to see what happened to the film movie industry, what happened to the music industry in terms of concerts, yet sports survived. And so if you, re- if you relied on revenue just from movies, film, music, you could have been crushed. Sure. Perhaps you survived. Hopefully you survived. But if you had sports as a complement, the blow would have been softened. I think we'll also see more notorious individuals uh, like a Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, those types of individuals getting involved in the sports world. We've seen success with Jay-Z's Rock Nation Sports We've seen success with Bill Wayne's Young Money APAA Sports Agency. And I think you'll find more of those types of individuals with huge followings, uh, celebrities getting involved in the sports world. Yeah, it's such a great point that we've seen both of those examples, what started perhaps as representing just NFL players, both of those agencies have expanded to other sports as well. Darren, I want to ask you, about the interplay between family law, which is my practice and I exclusively practice divorce and family law and also sports and the interplay between both of those worlds. And there's a few recurring issues that I see in my practice that I want to ask you about. The first is relocation. An athlete gets traded or is a free agent and signs with a new team in a different city or is traded mid-season. And sometimes, which is great, there's time to plan, and sometimes there's not. And a lot has to get coordinated, whether it's a new apartment, possible enrollment in schools for kids, there's tax implications, and sometimes there's the uprooting of a family. From your perspective, what considerations and what does a family law attorney need to be aware of from the athlete's perspective in the sports side of things? when there's a trade or an athlete signs with a new team in a new city? I'm not quite sure if there's anything that a family lawyer needs to be doing from a proactive standpoint when a player is traded. Certainly if there's any pending litigation with regard to child support, custody, divorce, and so on and so forth, the court may need to become aware and there may need to be a change of jurisdiction for the pending case. Uh, not necessarily, but that could be true from time to time. Otherwise, I think it's really a case-by-case basis. We've seen so many different types of family law-related services being provided for these players. I love it more often than not when we get in early and we can help with a prenup agreement. Unfortunately, more often than not, these athletes don't have prenups in place and then have issues in their familial affairs and it becomes much messier and more expensive. But yeah, I think whatever rights and obligations and duties that the player may have, perhaps let's say with child support and custody, you'd believe those continue uninterrupted irrespective of of where the athlete moves. However, if let's say the athlete was in close proximity to the mother of the child and there was a custody plan in place, That custody plan may need to be revised based on the fact that the player is in a different location for a vast amount of the year. 
And Darren, you mentioned the next topic I was going to get to, which is prenuptial agreements and really the importance of an athlete having a prenuptial agreement in place. You mentioned getting in early. And look, when you hear about a divorce, an athlete's divorce that costs millions of dollars, the first place my mind goes to is, was there a prenup? And too often you hear about the fact that there was not an agreement in place. I want to ask you, how important is it, in your opinion, for a prenuptial agreement to be in place prior to marriage for an athlete, especially now where the opportunities to earn money, not only from on the field, but off the field or vast. It's incredibly important. We try to have these conversations primarily with financial planners. I think agents do not feel comfortable having that type of conversation with their clients. Even financial planners really, there's never a comfort level in having that conversation. I personally have no problem having that discussion with a player, but more often than not, the financial advisor and or the agent are the first to be part of that athlete's business team. I come around much later. Perhaps that changes as college athletes and earlier are given these name, image, and likeness rights. But by and large, I'm not one of the first service providers that come in. Oftentimes, the player is already married without a prenup when I do come in, and it's too late for me to even suggest it, although you could get a post-nup but talk about a really difficult conversation to have. No, of course. Um, Look, that's never an easy conversation, whether it's representing an athlete or anybody else. And and Darren, you mentioned the NCAA and the changes that may happen at the college level when it comes to an athlete's name and likeness. Tell us about that and the potential implication as to an increase in an athlete's potential wealth, which may also further the need to have the conversation about a prenuptial agreement even earlier. Yeah. And we find that a lot of athletes end up meeting their spouse in college or earlier. So I think that they're, as I mentioned, getting in earlier with these athletes, when they ask me, what types of legal services do you provide? And do you have any suggestions for me? That may put me in a position where I have more opportunity to suggest prenups to them. But with regard to name, image, and likeness, what's going to happen is the landscape will open to college athletes and perhaps earlier to have the same types of off-field, off-court opportunities that professional players currently have to license their names, images, and likenesses to third parties to use in advertising and marketing material to enter into endorsement deals to post social media content in favor of the brands in exchange for competition, to host types of, let's say, football or basketball camps for gain, and really to create their own businesses if they like. What's beautiful is they, in theory, will have equality and opportunity. In essence, we'll see the very best players with the most revenue generated, just as we do in the professional ranks. But I think you'll see if a player wants to earn some money off the field, off the court, he or she will at least have that opportunity. And it may not be six figures. It may be low four figures, but at least it's something. Is this long overdue in terms of the NCAA's business model, in in terms of the shift in the changes? Is is this a long overdue change from your perspective? Of of course it's long overdue. Uh, The NCAA has fought it tooth and nail for as long as people have requested it. 
And if it wasn't like for states like my own in Florida and others who pushed the envelope and required as of July 1, at least in Florida, that athletes be given these rights, the NCAA probably still would have done nothing. And the NCAA has done nothing still. We have more and more states that are considering legislation on name, image, and likeness. We have the federal government that has six bills pending that touch upon name, image, and likeness. And the NCAA has sat around and done nothing. And July 1 is, is very quickly approaching. So this could have all been ameliorated had the NCAA taken proactive measures to change its antiquated law the rules that prohibit athletes from monetizing their names, images, and likenesses. Instead of doing something, the NCAA said at first, absolutely not. Later, after states started getting involved, okay, we'll allow for it, we'll, we'll propose legislation, we'll vote on it. That was supposed to happen January of this year. January's coming past, February's coming past, March is coming past, and here we are in April, and the NCAA has still done nothing. That was unfortunate, and Darren, you, you said it absolutely brilliantly. And do, what do you see as the, the, the ramifications or the impact in terms of how long an athlete or a player remains in school versus opting for the NFL or opting to play professional sports instead of remaining four years in college? Hard to say. I do see opening up the door for name, image, and likeness rights, providing an incentive for athletes to stay, but I think only certain athletes. If an athlete is given a, a pro grade that is high sure. and is told now is a good time to leave and you'll get drafted at a certain level, why not? Then the athlete can earn those name, image, and likeness rights, but also earn salaries from their respective professional teams and always go back later in life and complete their degrees. And and so I think it'd be hard to argue that it's going to have that much of an emphasis in the decision-making process of these players who are destined to play professionally. I still think the very best of the best will leave early so that they can start earning a salary. Aaron, it's a great point. And as we finish up on the Shine On podcast, I want to ask you about your book, which I think is great and a must read, which is titled How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know. Tell us why you wrote the book. And I think, obviously, the book, it touches on so many things, not only sports law, but other areas as well, from contracts to antitrust issues, things you encounter in your practice but tell us about the book. In reality, I wrote the book because the American Bar Association contacted me without solicitation many years ago and asked if I'd be interested in writing a sports law treatise. And I was blown away by that. It was early in my career. I think I was practicing for two or three years. And I said to myself, this is an amazing opportunity to push myself to to write something that I can look back on for the rest of my life, but also brand myself. I'm always thinking about how I can better brand myself. And what's great about it is I I had that first edition published. And then a few years later was asked to to write a second edition, which was then published as well. And then earlier this year, the ABA came calling back and asked if I'd be interested in the third edition. Oh, that's so, fantastic. Good for you. That's, that's thanks. A you in the book. That's an amazing accomplishment. And Darren, I want to ask you, because you're a professor and I know you give advice to 
law students and a lot of people and, and devote your time in doing so. A lot of students, attorneys, they often say, I want to practice sports law. But I'm, I'm guessing for a lot of people, it's not often understood what that entails and what's involved. So when you get asked about your work and about the practice of, of, of being a sports law attorney, what's your advice or what do you say to the student at University of Florida Law School or other attorneys who are looking to make a shift into what you do? Yeah, I actually opened the book uh, on this particular subject, which is there such a thing as sports law? And it's a mixed answer. The answer is no, to the extent that you're applying other areas like criminal law, family law, intellectual property law, contracts, so on and so forth, to athletes, to agents, to sports businesses. However, there is a unique area of sports law if you consider that a lot of the litigation is in fact arbitration and done so through the various players associations. So it's not even the American Bar Association or JAMS, but perhaps the NFL Players Association's arbitration system or MLBPA's arbitration system. And the law, as we understand it as lawyers, the precedent isn't necessarily case law that's been developed in various district courts. Instead, it's the precedent that's been established by the arbitrators within those arbitration systems. So, you, and, and believe me, there are many instances where the decisions run contrary to what we would normally expect in a sure. court of law. Sure. So it's important then, if you want to practice sports law, at least in that regard, where I consider it to be separate and apart from other areas of the law, to have an appreciation for the distinctions, for the key players, for the precedent. Very helpful. Darren, great answer. And again, I want to thank you for coming on the Shine Up podcast. This was a blast. It was a lot of fun. I want to ask you, where can people find you or get in touch on social media or reach out with, with questions regarding your work? Yeah, on social media, at Darren Heitner, D-A-R-E-N-H-E-I-T-N-E-R, on Twitter, on Instagram, um, on Facebook. I'm, I think, toying around with TikTok. I don't know how good I am at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> LinkedIn, you can find me anywhere. And then the law firm's website is heitnerlegal.com. And uh, look, I, I really thank you for having me on. It was a great conversation. Darren, I appreciate it. I take the next few weeks with the NFL draft leading up to the draft and after the draft, it's going to be a busy time for you. So I appreciate the time. Thank you for coming on and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Take care. What a show on the Shine Up podcast, episode 12 in the books. Amazing interview with leading sports law and business attorney, Darren Heitner of Heitner Legal. He's the go-to for anything and everything sports law related. Thank you for listening to the Shine Up podcast, to the listeners on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Thank you for listening. Producer, David Yass, thank you as always. My pleasure, sir. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and check out my new website, shineondivorce.com. Send your emails into the new Shine On podcast email address, evan at shineondivorce.com. Follow, listen, subscribe, and shine on. I'm Evan Shine. We'll talk to you again real soon.